Chapter Eight of the Escaping Club by A. J. Evans. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Eight, Fort Nine, Ingolstadt. In the early days of the war, Fort Nine, Ingolstadt, had been, according to the oldest inmates of the prison house, a quiet, well-behaved sort of place but for the past six months the Germans had collected into the fort all the movie sujets from the German point of view, and all those prisoners of war who had made attempts to escape from other camps. There were about a hundred and fifty officer prisoners in the place, and of these at least one hundred and thirty had made successful attempts to escape from other camps, and had only been recaught after from three days to three weeks temporary freedom. When Kick and I arrived, seventy-five percent of the prisoners were scheming and working continually to this end. Some had tramped to the Dutch or Swiss frontiers and had been captured there. Some had taken the train, those who could speak German, and had been eventually caught by some mischance, and all firmly believed that it was only the blackest misfortune which prevented them from crossing the frontier, and were convinced that, if once more they could get clear of the camp, they would reach neutral territory and freedom. Escaping and how it should be done, what to beware of and what to risk, what food to take, what clothes to wear, maps, compasses, and how to get them, how to look after your feet, and how to light a fire without smoke, where to cross the frontier and what route to take, and a hundred and one things connected with escaping were the most frequent subjects of conversation, and rarely out of the thoughts of the great majority of the prisoners at Fort Nine. Every man was ready to give the benefit of his experiences, his advice, and his immediate help to anyone who asked for them. In fact, we pooled our knowledge. The camp was nothing less than an escaping club. Each man was ready to help any one who wished to escape, and had a plan quite regardless of his own risk or the punishment he might bring upon himself. For courts martial, no one cared twopence, and nearly everyone in the fort had done considerable spells of solitary confinement. There were in the camp, mainly among the Frenchmen, some of the most ingenious people I have ever come across. Men who could make keys which would unlock any door. Men who could temper and jag the edge of an old table knife so that it would cut iron bars, expert photographers very useful for copying maps, engineering experts who would be called in to give advice on any tunnel which was being dug, men who spoke German perfectly, men who shammed insanity perfectly, and many like myself, who were ready to risk a bit to get out, but had no parlor tricks. One had escaped from his prison camp dressed as a German officer, another had escaped in a dirty clothes-basket, and another had been wheeled out of the camp hidden in a muck-tub. Another sportsman had painted his face green to look like a water-lily, and had swum the moat in daylight under the sentry's nose. It is impossible to recount all the various means that were tried, and successfully tried, in order to escape from camps. Forgery, bribery, impersonation, with an utter disregard of risks of being shot, all found their advocates in Fort Nine. In spite of the fact that every man was ready to do his utmost, at whatever personal risk, to help a friend who was trying to escape, each man was advised to keep his own plans of escape strictly to himself. It was not that we were afraid of spies among ourselves. 
but it was impossible to be quite sure of all the orderlies who were either Frenchmen or Russians. There was one French orderly of whom we had serious suspicion, but could never prove anything against him. It can be readily understood that the Germans, having herded some 150 officers with the blackest characters into one camp, took considerable precautions to keep them there. From the moat on one side to the moat on the other, the fort at the broadest part measured about 300 yards. On the southern side, as can be seen from the sketch map, the moat ran around the fort in a semi-oval, and steep grass banks sloped from the top of the ramparts to the edge of the moat, beside which was a narrow footpath patrolled by sentries. On the southern side the ramparts were higher than on the northern, and the top must have been fifty feet above the moat. Along the top there was a narrow footpath where the prisoners were allowed to walk. From this path we got a good view of the surrounding country, which was completely under cultivation and very flat, with small wooded downs in the distance to relieve the monotony. From the path we were able to see the moat, but owing to the shelving of the bank, not the sentry in the path below. Just inside the paradise there were at regular intervals heavily built traverses, and between the traverses glass ventilators poked up from the rooms and passages which lay under the southern ramparts. From the paradise a grass bank sloped down to a broad gravel walk, and from this another steep bank dropped some twenty feet into the inner court. The barred window from the orderly's quarters, the kitchen, and the solitary confinement cells looked out from this bank into the courtyard. On the northern side a similar bank, but without windows in it, sloped up to the gravel path, which ran all round the fort. Only a seven-foot parapet, over which we were forbidden to look, bounded the gravel path on the north side but the rules did not forbid us looking into the outer courtyard where Appel was usually held. On the south side the moat was about forty yards broad, and on the north only about sixteen yards, and though we never found out the depth accurately, we imagined it to be about five feet at the deepest part. The whole space inside was formed into two courtyards by a very broad central passage leading from the main door to the centre capinière on the south side. The earth ridge on the top of the passage formed the highest point of the fort. On it was a flagstaff where flags were hoisted at each German victory, imaginary or otherwise. A sentry was always posted there. In the daytime there were eighteen sentries posted in and around the court, and at night-time twenty-two posted as I have shown them on the sketch map. It was obvious that there were only two possible ways of getting out. One was to go out by the main gate past three sentries, three gates, and a guardhouse, and the other was to go through the moat. It was impossible to tunnel under the moat. It had been tried, and the water came into the tunnel as soon as it got below the water level. An aeroplane was the only other solution. That was the problem we were up against, and however you looked at it, it always boiled down to a nasty cold swim or a colossal piece of bluff. All the members of Room 45, where I now found myself, had previously escaped from other camps. Milne and Fairweather, with Milne's brother, then at Custron, had walked out of the main gate of a camp of which I forget the name, the brother dressed as a German officer, Fairweather as a soldier, and Milne as a workman. 
The scheme had worked well. They had walked into the commandantur as if to see the commandant, and then had pulled off their British uniforms in the passage, and, leaving them on the floor, had calmly walked out of the other door of the commandantur and passed all the sentries without any difficulty. Milne's brother spoke excellent German, and they said that their get-up had been very good and had been the result of some months' hard work. Oliphant and Medlicott had been caught together within a mile or two of the Dutch frontier. Poole and these two had escaped together from a camp by an audacious bit of wire-cutting in full daylight, suitable sideshows having been provided to keep the sentries occupied. After doing the march on foot to the frontier at an almost incredible speed, they lay up in a wood a couple of miles or so from the frontier sentries, intending to cross that night. Most unluckily for them, the day being Sunday, always the most dangerous day for escaping prisoners, as there are so many people about, a party of sportsmen came upon them. Oliphant had his boots on and managed to get away, but Poole and Medlicott were collared. A sentry marched them along to a sort of barn, opened the door, and entered before them. They slammed the door on him and bolted. Poole got clean away and crossed the frontier that night, but Medlicott was caught after a short, sharp chase. Oliphant took a wrong compass bearing during the night, lost his way, and was caught the following morning. They really had very bad luck. All three ought to have crossed, as they were very determined fellows, and all of them had had considerable previous experience in escaping. We used to talk bitterly of prisoners' luck at Ingolstadt, and one of the things which induced us to keep on trying was the belief that our luck would turn. Medlicott especially had had four or five attempts before he came to Ingolstadt. One of these was most spectacular, and I must give a short account of it. I am not sure out of which camp the escape was made, but one-time inmates will perhaps recognize it. A road ran alongside one of the main buildings of the camp. On the far side of the road was a steep bank with a barbed-wire fence on the top, and from there terraced gardens sloped steeply up a hill and away from the camp. The building was several stories high, and Medlicott and a companion decided that it would be possible to fix up a drawbridge from the second-story windows and from there jump over the road in the wire onto the terrace. Every detail was fully thought out. They had a nine-foot plank, the near end of which they intended to place on the window-sill, and the far end would be supported by a rope from the top of the window. This would form an extremely rickety bridge, but though they would have a considerable drop, twelve feet or so, they had only quite a short distance to jump forward, as the road was quite narrow. Arrangements had been made to put out the electric light and to cut the telephone wires simultaneously, as a sentry was posted in the road, and they had to jump over his head. The most suitable room was occupied by a Belgian general, and they decided to make the attempt from there. When they entered the Belgian's room on the selected night and informed him of what was about to happen, he absolutely refused to allow his room to be used for such a purpose. Medlicott explained to him, in bad French, that they were going from that room at once, whatever the general said and that if he made a noise they would be compelled to use force to keep him quiet. The general started shouting, Assassin, and Amwa, Amwa, but they sat on him and gagged him and tied him to the bed. Then they got out their plank and successfully jumped over the road and got clean away. 
They were recaught, however, about four days afterwards, I don't remember how. At their court-martial they were complimented by the President on their escape, and were given the lightest possible punishment, about two months apiece, I think, for the numerous crimes they had committed. The Belgian general was brought up as a witness against them, but could say nothing without making himself a laughing-stock, or worse. The other Englishmen at Fort Nine all lived in Room 42. They were Major Gaskell, Captain May, Captain Gilliland, Captain Batty Smith, Lieutenant Buckley, together with Lieutenant Bellison, a Frenchman, who spoke English with complete fluency, though with a bad accent. I know that when I first went to Ingolstadt they had some scheme on for tunneling out of the inner court through the rampart so as to come out halfway up the bank above the moat on the south side. It was a good idea, but never got very far, as the beginning of the tunnel was discovered by the Germans, without Room 42 being incriminated, however. I do not remember any time in Fort Nine when there was not some scheme or other in the English rooms for escaping, and we all occupied some hours nearly every day in perfecting our arrangements for escaping. There were several excellent maps in the fort, especially amongst the Frenchmen, and very many laborious hours were spent in copying these in different colored inks. Several people even made two or three copies so as to be ready to try again immediately in the event of their being recaptured with a map in their possession. A certain amount of map copying was done by photography. Cameras were strictly prohibited, but there was at least one in the fort which had got in I don't know how, and which did a lot of useful work. The Frenchmen in the fort were, as a whole, a most excellent lot of fellows, and the English and French were the very best of friends. Colonel Tardieu, the senior French officer, was one of the old school. He thanked whatever gods there be for his unconquerable soul, and would have no truck with the Germans. He asked no favors from them, and would show no gratitude if they offered him any. He protested formally but vehemently against such insults as being asked to sit at the same table as the German officer who was guarding him on a railway journey. He said that eating at the same table was, in a way, a sign of friendship, and to ask a French colonel to eat with a German was an insult. I hear he was sentenced to a long term of imprisonment for this and many similar offenses. How could we all help having the greatest admiration for the unbending spirit of this man, who had his own rigid ideas of honor and lived up to them to the letter? in spite of a feeble body by no means fit to withstand the strain of continuous antagonism and physical discomfort. Commandant de Goy, who escaped from Germany a few months after I did, was in the French Flying Corps, and a very well-known man in it, I believe. At one time he had been sent by the French to reorganize the Turkish Aviation Corps, and told some amusing stories of his meetings with Germans there who were simultaneously reorganizing the Turkish army. He had escaped from some other camp in a clothes basket and had very nearly got across the Swiss frontier. He had a perfect mania for attempting to escape in baskets and tried twice more at Ingolstadt. He was a good-looking, strongly-made, athletic fellow of forty or thereabouts, and a great friend of Major Gaskell's. Through Major Gaskell I very soon got to know de Goy's very well. Then there was Michel, a big fat man whose father had been in a very high position in the French army, but had retired just before the war. 
He was an extremely nice fellow and very keen and quite good at games. He and Dussault, also a charming fellow, were the best French hockey and tennis players in the fort. One of the most interesting people in the fort, and certainly the best read in French literature, was Dukeshi, the son of Colonel Dukeshi, who took some considerable part in the invention of the French 75-millimeter gun. I gathered that he had led a pretty fast life before the war. He was a small dark fellow, very strong and wiry, and French to his fingertips. He used to give me French lessons, and he learnt to talk English very quickly. Le Long, Le Croix, and de Robert, and several others were nothing but children, and they were always in irrepressibly good spirits. They were great men at our fancy dress balls, when they usually came marvellously got up as ladies of no reputation, with immense success. They were ready to attempt to escape, play the fool, or be a nuisance to the Germans at any time, night or day, with equal good humour. Room 39, where they lived a sort of hand-to-mouth existence, was always untidy and always noisy. They preferred it like that. Then there was a French colonial colonel and Moretti, both Corsicans. The colonel had been in command of the disciplinary battalion of the Joyeux, that is to say, the French criminals who do their military service in Africa in a special military organization. You can well imagine that the colonel of the battalion, to which the most incorrigible cases are sent, is likely to be a pretty hard case himself. The French used to say that all Corsicans, as soon as they get a command of any sort, imagine themselves to be budding Napoleons. This was rather the case with the colonel. He had been badly hit on the head by a bit of shell, and was not always quite sane. He was a middle-sized man, very strong and active, with close-cropped hair and rugged face, and I am sure he would stick at absolutely nothing to gain his ends. He considered himself a great strategist with regard to escaping at any rate, but it was Moretti who had the brains and ingenuity, as well as the skill to carry out the plans. Moretti was very short but wonderfully well made, with a round cheerful face and a funny little flat nose. He was always laughing or ragging someone. He and Buckley were inseparable companions in crime, and stole oil, potatoes, coal, or wood together, keeping up a continuous flow of back-chat all the time. He had been an adjutant-chief, sergeant-major, in a Joyeu battalion at the age of twenty-eight, which is extraordinarily young, considering that only the very best NCOs can be used for such work, and had won his commission in France. Having been employed for the eight years previous to the war in managing and outwitting the most ingenious criminals that exist when they try to escape, he knew just about all there was to be known about stealing, cutting iron bars, picking locks, etc. He told wonderful stories of the doings of his joyeux in France. He used to say they were the best troops in the world, and I believe they were extraordinarily good, as troupe de saw. He told us how in the early days of the war four hundred and fifty of his joyeux had stormed a trench system and killed six hundred Germans with their knives alone. That was at Maisonette, I think. He had some wonderful stories of the Second Battle of Ypres, where the Germans were driven back into the canal which they had crossed at Bixchut and were killed almost to a man. He saw more corpses there, he said, than at Verdun. When his joyeux were billeted behind the lines, a special warning had to be sent to the inhabitants to lock up all their belongings. 
There were, of course, a number of other Frenchmen who helped us, and whom we helped at various times, and who practically without exception were our very good friends, but I think I have mentioned those with whom we came most in contact. Among the Russians there were several excellent fellows, but as a whole we did not find them very interesting. Curiously, few of them spoke any language but their own really well, and except for Oliphant and afterwards Spencer, none of us spoke much Russian. They were very generous fellows, and whenever they did have any food, which was seldom, they used to give dinners and sing songs. With regard to escaping, if you needed anything, such as a leather coat or a greatcoat, the Russian greatcoat can, with little alteration, be turned into a very respectable German officer's greatcoat, you could be sure to get it as a gift or by barter from the Russians if they could possibly spare it. The difficulty of saying anything about them is added to by the fact that I cannot recall their real names. Charlie was a very rough diamond, but as generous and kind-hearted a fellow as one could meet anywhere. He and Buckley were good friends. He spoke German perfectly and played hockey, so I also got to know him a bit better than most of the others. Lustjansef was a Russian aviator. He spoke French well and used to teach me Russian. So did Kotchikov, a regular Hercules of a fellow, but mentally an absolute babe, a sort of Joe Gargery. He was universally light and continually had his leg pulled by the Frenchman in de Goy's room, where he and Lustenchef lived. Kotchikov could talk English not much better than I could talk Russian. He also talked French and German very badly. Consequently, he and I could never manage much of a conversation with one another without the help of all four languages. There were, however, several Russians, real good fellows, whom I never got to know well. One of them had escaped from a camp with some friends and had reached the frontier after walking for over thirty days. His friends had got across, but he had been recaptured. I heard a short time ago that he had escaped and had crossed the Swiss frontier at the same place as Buckley and I did. Our day at Fort Nine was regulated to a certain extent by appels, or roll-calls. When I first went to Ingolstadt there were three appels a day, at 7 a.m., at 11.30 a.m., and between 4 and 7 in the evening, according to the time of year. After I had been there a month or so a fourth appel was added at 9 o'clock at night. After this fourth appel the door leading from each wing to the center of the fort was locked and bolted, so that the two wings were cut off from communication with each other. The 7 a.m. appel took place whilst we were still in bed. A German NCO came round and flashed a torch in each of our faces, or satisfied himself that we were all there. Immediately afterwards the great iron doors leading into the inner courtyards were opened. It was in these inner courtyards that we played hockey and tennis and football, and did our exercises, etc. The rules of the fort stated that the 11.30 appel should take place either in our rooms or in the outer courtyard, the place where it was being held when Kick and I first arrived at the discretion of the commandant. As the feeling between the Germans and the prisoners became more and more bitter, the appel outside became really very interesting and from the German point of view an almost intolerable performance. We always used to object to this outside appell owing to the nuisance of turning out and to the waste of time, 
as the Germans never managed to count us in less than half an hour. I will say they had a pretty difficult task. We never stood still and gave them a fair chance, as the general spirit of Fort Nine was to be insubordinate and disobedient whenever possible, so the Germans more or less dropped this outside of hell and only had it when the C.O. had some order or strafe to read out to the prisoners as a whole. If the Germans wished the 11.30 appell outside, they gave one ring on an electric bell which sounded in our passage, and if inside, two rings. As 11 a.m. was our usual time for breakfast, we used to listen for the second ring with some impatience. About ten minutes after the bell had rung for outside of hell, the greater part of the prisoners would congregate in the outer courtyard. They turned up in any sort of costume, smoking cigarettes, and talking and shouting and laughing. In the courtyard on the far side of the moat a guard of some twenty or thirty Hun soldiers was drawn up, and on either side of the main gate stood eight or nine more villainous-looking Bavarian soldiers with rifles and fixed bayonets. The C.O. usually kept us waiting for a minute or two, being perhaps under the delusion that we might get into some sort of order if we were given time. He came from the bureau through the main gate, followed by his Feldwebel, Sergeant Major, and several N.C.O.s, and though the majority used to take no notice of him whatever, he was usually greeted by some confused shouting in four languages. By this time nine-tenths of the officers had ranged themselves very roughly five deep on the right-hand side of the main gate, which was immediately closed by a cordon of sentries. Several officers would continue to stroll about behind the ranks or wander from one part to another to talk to friends, and in several parts of the line, and especially at the English and French end of the line, little knots of men would hold animated discussions of the latest news. The front ranks stood firm, but the rear ranks paid little or no attention to the Germans. On the left of the gateway the orderlies were drawn up and stood in a fairly regular and silent mob, highly amused at the disorder in the ranks of the officers. The C.O. would stand in front for perhaps a couple of minutes, hoping vainly that things would calm down. He then saluted us formally. A few Frenchmen and most Englishmen and Russians who happened to be looking in that direction answered his salute. Then a scene something as follows used to take place. The C.O. called out, Meine Herren, then louder, Meine Herren, etwas Ruhebitte. This had some small effect, though there would be one or two cries of comprends pas, parlez pas Bosch, of which the Germans took no notice. One or two Englishmen whose breakfasts were getting cold would try to make the Frenchmen shut up, but only added to the noise. Two NCOs were then sent off to count us. One went along the front and one along the rear of the ranks, trying to get the officers to stand in files of five. As the prisoners were continually moving about, this looked an impossible task, but they eventually used to manage it, though they sometimes had to give up in despair and start again. As soon as this was over the numbers were reported to the Feldwebel, and two more NCOs were sent into the building to count the sick who had remained in their rooms while we stood stamping our feet in the cold and waiting for them. Perhaps some Frenchman would call out to an Englishman, Savez combien de prix on ne bouche les anglais en prière? On se met trois, ça de bouche. A certain amount of laughter followed, and the ranks would break up more or less and start walking about and talking. 
about ten minutes' wait, and the NCOs who had been counting the sick would return and give their counts to the Feldwebel. Sometimes the tally was right, and sometimes wrong. If the latter, the whole thing had to be done over again, accompanied by cries of derision, contempt, and impatience from the prisoners. Very often the riot got so bad that the C.O., after glancing anxiously over his shoulder, beckoned the guard to come in to overawe us. The old Landstrom, as they came pouring through the gate over the moat, were greeted with hoots and yells. At the order of an N.C.O. they loaded. This had no effect on the Frenchman, who laughed and ragged the C.O. and sentries in French and bad German. But why did the Germans never shoot? It is not difficult to understand. We had no reason to suppose that the Commandant was tired of life, and we knew that his Feldwebel was an arrant coward, and the one thing quite certain was that if the order to fire on us was given, the first thing we should do would be to kill the Commandant and the Feldwebel, and they knew it very well, and that was our safeguard. Many times during those outside appels at Fort Nine I was sure we were pretty close to a massacre, and the massacred would not have been confined to the prisoners. There were in that small courtyard only about forty armed Germans, all oldish men, and there were of us, counting the orderlies, nearly two hundred extremely active men. We should have won easily, and the Germans knew it. At any time we wished we could have taken that fort and escaped, though if we had none of us would have got out of the country alive. You must understand, then, that the Germans did not tolerate this insubordination because they liked it, or because they were too kind-hearted to fire but because for the sake of their own skins they dared not give the order to fire. The prisoners, on the other hand, were prepared to risk a good deal for the sake of demonstrating how little they cared for German discipline, and for the sake of keeping up their own spirits, but most especially just for the fun of ragging the hated Bosch. Toward the end of my time at Ingolstadt the Germans, as I have already said, only had a pal outside when they had something to announce to the prisoners. In the momentary hush which usually occurred when we were expecting the commandant to dismiss us, the Feldwebel would step forward, produce a paper, and start to read in German. This was always a signal for a wild outcry. Comprends pas, assassin, assassin, for as I will show later the Feldwebel had good reason to be unpopular. Parlez pas Bosch! can't understand that damned language, ne pomenyaya, don't understand, from a Russian, etc. The Feldwebel would carry on, white with funk, till the end, when the C.O. would seize the first moment in which he could make himself heard to dismiss us with the words, Appel is fertig, meine Herren. If the cordon of sentries in front of the main gate happened to hear the dismissal, they got out of the light quickly. If not, they were brushed aside before they knew what was happening. Why no one ever got stuck with a bayonet, I never could make out. So much for the 11.30 appel. Very much more often than not, it took place in our rooms. We carried on with our breakfast or whatever we were doing, and an NCO, after giving a tap at the door, came in, made certain that everyone was present, and went out again. Five minutes or so later the electric bell would ring, and Appel was over. The doors into the inner courtyard were then opened again, they were always closed during Appel, 
and everything was done with the minimum of inconvenience to ourselves. The time of the next appell varied with the time of the year. It took place about half an hour before dark, and after it the doors into the inner courts were shut for the night, but the two wings were not locked off from one another till after the nine o'clock appell, when we were visited in our rooms in just the same way. Between four and nine a sentry was left in the long passage in each of the wings. Poor chap! He used to have an uncomfortable time trying to stop us from stealing the lamps in the passage. After nine o'clock he was withdrawn, and, as I have already said, the doors at the end of the passage were locked, and we were left to our own devices. The above description of an outside appell is by no means an exaggeration. Certainly they were sometimes less rowdy, but not often. I remember one appell was taken by General Peters in person. General Peters was the CO of all the camps of Ingolstadt and appeared one morning with some special strafe or reprisal to read out to us. If I remember it right, it had something to do with alleged ill-treatment of German officers in France. The general was not popular, and even more noise was made than usual. Just before the cordon was drawn across the door, a French captain walked down the whole front of the line carrying a chair and sat down through the appell. When the Feldwebel stood forward to read his document, he was greeted with the usual cries of Assassin and Parle-Pas-Bosch, and finished in a storm of howls which completely drowned his voice. The interpreter then proceeded to read a French translation, which was listened to with attention, the reading being merely punctuated by cheers and laughter and hoots at the interesting points. After the Russian shooting affair, which happened towards the end of our time at the fort, one Russian always used to turn up with a large red cross flag on a pole. When things began to get really exciting, I own I used to edge away from the flag as I felt sure the Germans would fire their first volley into the group round it. Footnotes Footnote 1 Lieutenant Medlicott R.F.C. was later murdered by the Germans on his tenth attempt to escape. End of chapter 8. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.